Hi guys, thanks for listening. Thank you as well to those of you who donate to the Patreon account. I've launched a campaign to raise funds to buy a new iMac. My current computer has been in use for over eight years, and it is affecting my ability to create new content. As previously stated, my Patreon account can be found at www.patreon.com/slash leader one l-e-a-d-e-r-o-n-e for those of you who would prefer to make a one-time single donation there is also the option to send money to my paypal account the email address to send it to is morgan rector my last name spelled r-e-c-t-o-r 331 morgan rector 331 at hotmail.com remember any amount is fine if one dollar one time is all you wish to donate It would be gratefully accepted. Thank you for all your support, whatever forms it has taken. Enjoy the show. The dubious honorific of Freeway Killer was bestowed upon three different serial killers. Patrick Kearney, who has already been profiled on this show, is one of them. In this episode, I profile William Bonin, whose crimes are not identical, but are commensurate in terms of their brutality and inhumanity. William George Bonin was born on January 8, 1947, in Connecticut. He was born the same day as David Bowie, but as time would tell, his fan base was substantially exiguous in comparison. He had two brothers. The boys grew up in a dysfunctional household whose atmosphere was rife with abuse and neglect. Both his parents were alcoholics. His father was also addicted to gambling. This took such a toll on the family's financial standing that his mother often could not afford to buy groceries. They eventually lost their house to foreclosure. Neighbors would feed the kids when they saw that they were starving. Unable to provide for the children, their parents left the boys to their maternal grandfather. This would have been a compassionate and practical decision if not for the fact that their grandfather was a convicted child molester. He abused his own daughter and has been suspected of abusing his grandsons. At the age of six, Bonin was stationed at an orphanage. He has insisted that he could not remember his time there. Some do remember what life there was like. Among the punishments doled out by staff included plunging the child's head into a toilet bowl. They would also be forced to climb a flight of stairs well past the point of exhaustion until their legs were wobbling and shaking. At the age of 10, Bonin was remanded to a Connecticut juvenile detention center for the offense of stealing license plates. He was sexually assaulted during his time there. 
The identity of the offender remains unknown, but typical of these victims, Bonin became prematurely sexual. The intermingling of sex and violence, like the kind he experienced at that time, would influence his criminal behavior in the years to come. Indeed, he went on to molest his brothers and other boys in his neighborhood. These early experiences markedly colored Bonin's sexual proclivities. On one occasion, an older boy approached Bonin for sex. Bonin granted this request under the condition that he be restrained with his wrists tied behind his back. He has stated that this position made him feel more secure. When Bonin was in the eighth grade, his family lost their house to foreclosure and their future in Connecticut looked grim. They decided to move to California, assuming that prosperity awaited them in the Golden State. The sunshine and bountiful opportunities may have done much to alleviate the family's financial hardships, but it did nothing to alleviate the dark ruminations that came to preoccupy Bonin long before the family's arrival. He once spoke of his struggle to control the urges that were born of this pathology. To quote Bonin, Sometimes I'd get tense and think I was going to go crazy if I couldn't get some release. Like my head would explode. So I'd go out hunting. Killing helped me. It was like needing to go gambling or getting drunk. I had to do it. 1965. William Bonin graduated from high school, got engaged to his girlfriend, and enlisted in the U.S. Air Force. He served in Vietnam as an aerial gunner. He earned a good conduct medal. He even put his life on the line to save a fellow officer. His time in the war wasn't beneficial for all who served alongside him. His urge to victimize others sexually got the best of him. To quote a prosecuting attorney at his trial, The closest the defendant got to combat in Vietnam was when he held a gun to two soldiers' heads and sodomized them. He was honorably discharged in 1968. He returned to California and lived with his mother in the township of Downey. There he was married for the first time, but the union was not built to last. His bride was disturbed by a recurring dream Bonin had, which he related to her. To quote Susan Bonin, He told me he had the dream a lot of times. He would be in a bar alone, and he would walk up to a girl who had no face. He would buy her a drink and take her to a deserted place. There he'd rape her, kill her, and bury her in a shallow grave. She said he would wake up in tears. Free from his marriage, it was open season on the young boys of the area. Shortly after moving into his mother's house, he kidnapped and raped four teenage boys. William, 14, John, 17, Larry, 12, Jesus, 18. He forced them to perform fellatio on him. He followed up with sodomy. This was not the end. He tortured them with such sadistic tactics as squeezing their testicles as hard as he could. 
He continued to victimize young men until he was arrested in 1969. He was driving with a 16-year-old boy as his passenger. He told police that they were lucky to have caught him. He openly admitted that part of his agenda involved killing the boy. Bonin was examined by a court-ordered psychiatrist. He was diagnosed as a mentally disordered sex offender, amenable to treatment. He was placed under observation at Atascadero State Hospital. He was also found to be bipolar. The part of his brain that restrains violent impulses had been damaged. He underwent psychiatric treatment for two years, but there was nothing they could do to nullify his lust for young men. He was adjudged untreatable. To quote one report, he wanted to straighten himself out, but doesn't know how to go about it. He was remanded to a prison to finish serving his sentence. He was released in 1974 after being deemed by doctors as no longer a danger to others. Sixteen months later, William Bonin met 14-year-old David McVicker, who was hitchhiking at the time in hopes of being dropped off at his home in Huntington Beach. Having survived this encounter, McVicker was able to recount the incident. I was actually hitchhiking home from Garden Grove to Huntington Beach, and he got me. He was totally cool. There was nothing in the least bit strange about him. Bonin asked David if he was gay. David, realizing this was a red flag, asked Bonin to stop the car. Bonin pulled out a gun. To quote David, that's when I knew I was in trouble. Bonin brought them to a deserted field. He aggressively raped David. He confiscated David's t-shirt and strangled him with it. David screamed. Bonin apologized and drove him home. As he dropped him off, he said, We'll meet again. The ominous implications of this statement were not lost on David. Years of post-traumatic stress followed, as if it weren't bad enough that David was plagued by flashbacks of the incident. He was ridiculed. He dropped out of school. He even lost a job when his boss read an article that accused David of being Bonin's accomplice. As David put it, it's like being raped again. He lived on disability benefits for decades after the incident. The nightmares made sleep a travail. A prosecutor promised David that Bonin would be sentenced to 15 years to life. This brought David some peace of mind. That was shattered when Bonin was released after serving three years. He was given 18 months of probation. Bonin moved back in with his mother. He got a job as a truck driver. His lifestyle was normal enough that he was dating a girl. But this didn't mean that Bonin had changed internally. His neighbor, Everett Fraser, hosted parties at his home on a regular basis. During one of those parties, Bonin met 22-year-old Vernon Butts. He was an amateur magician who dabbled in the occult. He also met 19-year-old Gregory Miley. 
Fraser recalled Bonin's motivation for attending his parties. I had all kinds of people coming to my house all the time. That's why he liked coming over to my place, because he knew he would meet a lot of young people through me. May 28, 1979 William Bonin and Vernon Butts hit the road seeking victims. They hit pay dirt when they discovered Thomas Glenn Lundgren, 13 years old, thumbing a ride. Bonin and Butts picked him up. What Lundgren didn't know about Bonin's van was the handles on the back doors were removed on the inside. There would be no way for the boy to escape. Numerous items for bondage and torture were arranged for easy access. Ligatures, knives, and other instruments employed as the mechanics in the malicious manufacture of pain were used effectively. Bonin was said by his accomplice to have been sadistic, delighting in the anguish suffered by his victims. Later that day, Thomas Lundgren's corpse was found. His penis and testicles had been severed. His throat had been slashed. He was stabbed all over his body. Ligature scars indicated a death by strangulation. Bonin has denied that he killed Lundgren, saying, I don't cut the dicks off little boys. Law enforcement officials still consider him responsible for the murder. In summer of 1979, Bonin was arrested for molesting a 17-year-old boy. He was still on probation, which meant that he should have been sent directly to prison to serve the rest of his sentence. Due to an administrative error, he was released before the court date. Everett Fraser picked Bonin up from Orange County Jail. On the way home, Bonin said to Fraser, No one's going to testify again. This is never going to happen to me again. Later in summer, Bonin and Butts took to the streets to find a new victim. They spotted Mark Shelton, 17 years old, who was walking toward a movie theater. Part of Mark's torture involved being raped with objects, including a stick. The torture was so overwhelmingly traumatic, his body went into shock, and he perished. They dumped his body in San Bernardino County. They were disappointed because he died before they got all their jollies. Naturally, Shelton's family was devastated by their loss. His father, Don, was in a vindictive frame of mind. His rage demanded release. To quote Don, I was consumed with rage. One day I walked out into my garden, saw my scarecrow perched there, and demolished it with a shovel. I just bashed it to pieces. If that hadn't happened, I might have done something worse later on. August 5th. Bonin and Butts were back at it the next day. On the Pacific Coast Highway, they found German exchange student Marcus Grabs. After torturing Grabs in the van, they brought him to Bonin's mother's house, as she was not home at the time. Grabs was sodomized and beaten to death. Once Bonin and Butts had their fill of Grabs, they threw his nude and battered body into the Malibu Canyon. 
When his body was found, stab wounds exceeded a count of seventy. He was left with a yellow nylon rope around his neck and an electrical cord around one of his ankles. Bonin was on a roll. August 29th. Donald Hyden Jr., 15 years old, was walking the streets of Hollywood. William Bonin and Vernon Butts abducted Hyden. They raped and tortured him throughout the night. Donald's remains were found the next morning at 11 o'clock. He had been stabbed in the neck and genitalia. Burn marks and bruises were found all up and down his body. His anus was so distended that speculation has it that he was violated with someone's fist or an object of similar dimensions. He was bludgeoned. He was strangled to death and tossed away like the others, deemed human garbage by Bonin and Butts. Butts has commented on the enjoyment he derived from participating in Bonin's crimes. He described their assault on the young men of Southern California as a, quote, good little nightmare, unquote. To quote Butts, after the first one, I couldn't do anything about it. There was something about Bonin that Butts found irresistible. Bonin didn't have to twist Butts' arm to persuade him to join him in his killing spree. As Butts put it, he had a hypnotic way about him. September 9th. 17-year-old David Murillo was riding his bike close to his home in La Mirada. He was returning home from a movie theater. Bonin and Butts decided he was a worthy candidate for rape, torture, and murder, so they lured him into their van. Once inside, David was bound. Bonin and Butts both raped him repeatedly. Once they were spent, they strangled him. For good measure, they bludgeoned him with a tire iron. Three days later, Morello's body was found alongside Highway 101. September 17th. 18-year-old Robert Wirostek was riding his bike to his job as a grocery store clerk. He never made it. The last anybody saw him, his cadaver was discovered on September 19th, dumped as it was along I-10. Bonin and Butts decided to keep a low profile for a while. November 29th. William Bonin and Vernon Butts kidnapped a teen Junior Doe. They beat and raped him savagely for hours. They strangled him to death and left his remains in Kern County. November 30th. Frank Dennis Fox, 17 years old, was the latest to end up in Bonin's van. When Bonin and Butts were finished with him, they tossed him on Ortega Highway. Markings on his corpse indicated signs of a brutal beating. Ligature marks were found on his ankles, wrists, and neck. His anal cavity was distended, indicating that he was viciously sodomized. With the advent of the Christmas holidays, Bonin took to the streets and highways in search of a present for himself. 
He mostly reserved Fridays and Saturdays for this activity. He spent Sundays with his girlfriend. 15-year-old John Kilpatrick left his mother's house to visit some friends and was never seen alive again. He had been a runaway for a long time as he was struggling to cope with his parents' divorce. His disappearance wasn't reported until February. To quote his mother, I didn't think he had run away. We just thought he was thinking things out and we didn't want to scare him off. John was identified by his mother in August 1980 after his tattoos were cited as distinguishing characteristics. January 1st, 1980. Bonin rang in the arrival of the 1980s by brutalizing and murdering a young man by himself. The victim was 16-year-old Michael Francis McDonald, who resided in Rialto. McDonald's corpse was found soon after, but he wasn't identified until March 24th. Bonin was a junkie for this. Charles Miranda, 15 years old, would learn this the hard way when he got into Bonin's van in Hollywood. Bonin had a new accomplice, Gregory Matthews Miley. Miley accompanied Bonin when they picked up Charles Miranda, who was hitchhiking. He was required to pay them for the trip. He gave them the six dollars he had with him. Bonin and Miley overpowered him and tied him up. Miley tried to rape Miranda, but he could not sustain an erection. To compensate, he raped Miranda with pointed objects that were scattered throughout the back of the van. He did this to save face in front of Bonin, feeling embarrassment due to his impotence. Bonin said to Miley, Kid's going to die. Kid's going to... This kid's going to die. Miley said, Why don't you just let the kid go? Bonin said, No, because he'll know us and he'll know the van. Bonin proceeded to demonstrate his homicidal technique to Miley, as he said to Miley, Can you do it? Let me show you how to do this. Bonin wrapped a shirt around Charles's throat. He interwove a tire iron into it and twisted it like it was a tourniquet. Excited by this, Miley jumped up and down on Charles's chest. They dumped Charles's nude body in an alleyway in downtown Los Angeles. They disposed of his clothing and other personal items elsewhere. Once they were finished with all this, Bonin said to Miley, I'm horny. Let's go and do another one. Miley said, Oh man, no way. I don't want to do it no more. I just want to go home. Despite his protestations, Miley assisted Bonin with a search for as well as torturing and murdering of another victim. February 3, 1980. 12-year-old James McCabe was waiting at a bus stop in Huntington Beach. His destination was Disneyland. When William Bonin and Gregory Miley asked James if he wanted a ride in Bonin's van, he took them up on it. He was so pumped for his day at Disneyland that it didn't occur to him that the men posed a threat to him. Instead of taking him to Disneyland as promised, they drove to a grocery store parking lot. After parking the van, Bonin and Miley got in the back of the van. They repeatedly raped and battered James.
Miley has said that he only listened to it at first, but joined in because he, quote, felt like it, end quote. Bonin finished it off by tying James's t-shirt around his neck and using the propeller technique with his tire iron to choke him to death. James's remains were found three days later. His body was left alongside a dumpster. Later, in an interview with David Lopez of KNXT-TV, Bonin said that of all the young men he raped and murdered, quote, that little kid was the easiest one to kill, unquote. Sixteen years after the death of her son, Anna McCabe still had not been able to come to terms with the death of her son. To quote McCabe, you know that country song, No Future in the Past, by Vince Gill? There isn't. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. March 14, 1980. 18-year-old Ronald Gatlin disappeared from his home environs of North Hollywood. His corpse was found the following day. His death was attributed to strangulation. There were ligature scars on his ankle, wrist, and neck. There were also indicators of rape and battery. One night, William Bonin was hanging out at Everett Fraser's house. Fraser's guest, William Pugh, a 17 years old, decided to leave at one point, and William Bonin decided to follow his lead. Bonin offered him a drive home, and Fraser accepted. Along the way, Bonin asked Pugh if he wanted to have sex. Pugh was not amenable to this idea at all, and when they came to a stop at a red light, he tried to escape from the van. Bonin grabbed his collar and dragged him back into the passenger seat. Bonin regaled Pugh with details of his favorite weekend pastime, which happened to consist of picking up male hitchhikers who were customarily raped, tortured, and murdered. Bonin decided to spare Pugh's life. He actually expressed his regret about how he handled the situation directly to Pugh. Bonin told him, If you want to kill somebody, you should make a plan and find a place to dump the body before you even pick a victim. As unexpected as it was that Bonin spared Pugh, it was even more surprising that Pugh was intrigued enough by Bonin's grisly pastime to want to participate. Rape and murder sounded awfully tempting to him. He already had a criminal history due to the myriad petty crimes for which he was arrested. Pugh became Bonin's new accomplice. The two Williams formed the partnership that scooped up troubled runaway Harry Todd Turner, who had just escaped from a group home. He was game to be taken anywhere as long as it put as much distance between him and the group home as possible. Pugh and Bonin lured Harry into the van with the offer of $20 for sex. Harry accepted this condition. He likely anticipated the kind of consensual sex that a dirty old man in a raincoat would have asked of him. This was not the case. Bonin tied Harry up. He raped him savagely. 
He bit his penis so hard he drew blood. Adding injury to injury, Bonin ordered Pew to beat him. Pew bludgeoned Harry until he was stripped of his will to resist. Nearly drained of his life force, Bonin finished him off by strangling him with his t-shirt and the tire iron. They dumped him in an alley in Los Angeles. Harry's anus exhibited signs of sexual assault. Bonin's teeth marks remained on Harry's penis. The autopsy revealed that Harry's skull was fractured in eight different locations. March 22nd, police found the remains of two boys alongside Ortega Highway in the Cleveland National Forest. They were 14-year-old Glenn Norman Barker and 15-year-old Russell Dwayne Rue. Glenn was hitchhiking when he was abducted. Russell was last seen at a bus stop. Their bodies were devoid of clothing. They were bruised all over. Ligature marks were found on their wrists, ankles, and necks. There were indicators of rape. Glenn's neck had been burned with a cigarette several times. Glenn's mother hoped she would live to see Bonin receive the death penalty, but she did not make it to that phase of sentencing. To quote Glenn's grandfather, she told me she would like to have lived to see Bonin die. It was the only regret she had. She really hated him. The police were reluctant, as they always are, to declare that a serial killer was on the loose without seeing evidence that this was so. The matter was even more complicated for law enforcement in the sense that there were three so-called freeway killers, only they didn't know that yet. The media were not willing to take this sitting down, and speculation about serial offender was rife among crime reporters. This was not helpful to police, except with the possibility that anybody with insider knowledge of these crimes might come forward. The problem was, those people were either dead or culpable, and neither were able or inclined to identify the offender. April 11, 1980 The body of 16-year-old Stephen Wood was found in an alley in Long Beach. He was left in the nude. There were scars from a savage beating to his face. Ligature marks were found on one of his ankles, a wrist, and his neck. His mother, Barbara Bean, never recovered from this loss. To quote Barbara, I live in a different world now. There is just too much to remember. She noted that her son, Carl, 20 years old, also struggled to come to terms with his brother's murder. To quote Barbara, he just went off the deep end. On what happened to be William Bonin's birthday, Carl purchased a shotgun and some ammunition. He rode to a friend's house and committed suicide in his garage. Commenting on the extent of his suffering, Barbara said, he was hurting for nine years. Carl used drugs to cope with his grief, and that led to addiction. As Barbara put it, it was an absolute nightmare at the end. Barbara and her husband moved to Arizona to disengage from all the reminders of her son's deaths that remained in Los Angeles. April 29, 1980. Darren Lee Kendrick worked at a grocery store. 
He was collecting carts in the parking lot when he was accosted by William Bonin and Vernon Butts. They promised him drugs if he joined them in the van. The next day, Kendrick's naked body was found in a public space. He was sodomized with aggressive brutality and force. Ligature marks were found on his ankles, wrists, and neck. He was stabbed at the top of his spinal cord. This was due to the ice pick that was rammed in his ear. There were chemical burns on his mouth, chin, chest, and stomach. He was forced to drink hydrochloric acid. William Bonin was represented by an attorney named Earl Hansen. Hansen commented on the escalating brutality of Bonin's murders, comparing it to the trajectory of drug addiction. He had to constantly increase the dosage to get the same euphoria. Bonin's sex and love life sometimes followed a conventional pattern. By this time, his relationship with his girlfriend had ended. He dated 18-year-old Lawrence Eugene Sharp for a while, but eventually became bored of the arrangement. Bonin always grew tired of such relationships. Torture and murder turned him on. Consent was far too vanilla for his sensibilities. May 19th. Vernon Butts declined to accompany Bonin on one of his hunting trips. Bonin decided to go it alone. He kidnapped 14-year-old Sean King from a bus stop. He tortured and raped him. After strangling him, he disposed of his remains at a public location, as always. He bragged about it to Butts. Sean King's body was not found as soon as the others were. King's mother, Lavada Gifford, wrote Bone in a letter begging him to tell police where Sean's body was left so that she could give him a proper burial before Christmas. Bonin wasn't moved by her letter. He was moved by his craving for a hamburger. As he put it, I was dying for a hamburger, and I knew if I went out with the cops, they would buy me a hamburger. In exchange for indicating the location of Sean's remains, Bonin would not be tried for his murder during his trial. Lavada wrote a series of letters to Bonin. She hoped that he would express remorse to her at some point. She expected a moral standard of which he was not capable. To quote Lavada, I saw on TV in 1989 that Bonin had become a born-again Christian, and I needed to know if he had made any real peace with his Lord and had any remorse. He wrote me back more than 13 times, but did he ever say he was sorry? Not one word. It was all about him and his favorite TV shows. He never acknowledged that he did anything wrong, so I stopped. May 28th, William Bonin invited 19-year-old drifter James Monroe to move into his mother's house with him. Being rootless involved accepting alms on a regular basis. And given his lack of contact with serial killers, Monroe didn't anticipate any kind of maleficence from William Bonin. His first impression of Bonin was that he was, quote, a good guy, really normal. Bonin helped Monroe secure a position at Dependable Driveway in Montebello, where Bonin worked. 
March 24th. William Bonin kept abreast of the latest media coverage of his crimes. He would drive to Orange County daily to buy a copy of the Register newspaper. The paper broke the story of a serial killer that was targeting boys in Southern California. People who were close to Bonin, but unaware of his involvement in these offenses, noticed that he was preoccupied with the story. He cut out articles on the freeway killer and kept them in a scrapbook, which was stored in his van. To quote Everett Fraser, Bill would bring in the newspaper and say, This guy got another one. And I'd say, Damn it, Bill. I wish they'd catch this guy. It's guys like this that give other good gay guys a bad name. Part of the Register's coverage included an artist's rendering of a van that was linked to the crimes. It bore more than a passing resemblance to William Bonin's van, which included a sticker on the back window that read, C.B. Trucker. Photos of the young men who were murdered were also published. Bonin pointed one of them out to one of his henchmen with glee. As one of his accomplices put it, he said, well, this is number 7, or 14, or 12. Law enforcement established a network comprised of multiple departments in as many townships so they could track down the parties responsible. William Bonin made a critical mistake, letting David McVicker live. McVicker read the coverage of the crimes and recognized patterns that were reminiscent of his encounter with Bonin. He called the police and notified them that he felt he was sure he knew who the freeway killer was. In an interview with Nancy Grace, McVicker said, I kept reading the newspapers, and every time I would read these stories about these kids coming up dead, it was like just in my stomach. I could just feel this. I knew what they went through. And then after a year of that, it was just kind of overwhelming to me. I finally called the sheriff's department and said, he's supposed to be locked up, but he's not. I didn't know. They needed to find out where he was. And as it was, he was killing everybody. According to Orange County investigator Bernie Esposito, McVicker tells me that after Bonin had done everything he wanted to do with him, he said, you know what? You're an all right guy. I was going to kill you, but I want to come back for you and use you again. William Bonin's luck and freedom were running out in equal measure. William Pugh was arrested for stealing a car. To avoid being prosecuted for this crime, Pugh offered up insider information about the freeway killer in exchange for immunity or reduced sentence. He didn't tell them about his role in the murder of Henry Todd Turner, but he did tell them William Bonin kept a cache of newspaper clippings about the case in his glove compartment. Investigators ran a check on Bonin's background and found a number of convictions for assaulting teenage boys. One of them was David McVicker. Investigators paid a visit to Everett Fraser's house. After presenting the information they had as of late, Fraser suddenly realized that William Bonin was the freeway killer. To quote Fraser, It just clicked. Something just clicked. I said, Okay, get out your pencils, you guys. Get out your pads of paper. They just looked at each other.
Now that William Bonin was the prime suspect in the freeway killer case, police began to tail him. The ball was in Bonin's court, but this time the game was his to lose. June 2nd. William Bonin and James Monroe were driving along a freeway when they spotted 19-year-old Stephen Wells. He agreed to have sex with them in exchange for transportation. They took him to Bonin's mother's house. After a round of consensual sex, Bonin offered Stephen $200 if he allowed Bonin to tie him up. Stephen agreed. As soon as Stephen was securely bound, Bonin unleashed a fury of rape and physical abuse. Monroe chose not to be present for this. He watched television in another room. As Monroe put it, At that point I knew it was real. Bonin went to get a glass of water, and I told him, No, don't do this. But Bonin said, It's too late. There's nothing that you or I can do to stop it. Later, in an interview with the police, Bonin described the torture and murder in an effectless tone. Both me and Jim beat him up prior to killing him. He said he wouldn't tell anyone just to let him go. When we finally got around to killing him, we put a shirt around his neck. I twisted it, and he was strangled. Bonin wasn't quite as detached during the act. As Monroe recalled, Bonin was screaming at Stephen who was equally as hysterical. As Monroe recounted, Bonin said to Stephen, Shut up! You're going to die! It was like he was a monster. After Steve was killed, Bonin and Monroe loaded the corpse into the van and drove to the home of Vernon Butts. Monroe described the events that followed their arrival. As we went up to the door, we knocked and Butts came out dressed in a Darth Vader uniform, like the Star Wars movie. We went inside, and Bonin told Butts, this is Jim Monroe, and he is my new partner. Butts said hi, and showed me all the people he killed. He showed me a closet containing 21 ID cards of all the victims that he killed. Bonin then told Butts to come look at what we did. So we all went out to the van. Bonin uncovered the body, and Butts replied, Oh, how nice. You got another one. Then Bonin asked Butts, Hey, do you want to come with us, or do you want to stay here and watch the news? Butts told Bonin that he would stay at the house. Bonin told Butts if he saw anything on the news to call him. After departing from Butts' home, they drove to Huntington Beach, where they dumped Stephen's body behind an abandoned gas station. Monroe described what happened next. Then we went on our way home. As we were driving home, we stopped off at McDonald's, went to the drive through window, and got some hamburgers. When we got home, we sat down. Bonin was eating a burger, looked up in the sky and said, Thanks, Steve. Then looked down and said, Thanks, Steve. Then looked at me and said, Wherever you are at, and started to laugh. Later that evening, Bonin told James that he had better keep quiet about the murder. To quote Monroe, Bonin told me that he was the freeway killer, that he had other partners out there who helped him kill, and that he killed 45 people. 
I got scared and started to cry again. He came up to me and told me to stop crying because he was not going to hurt me unless I ran or called the police. Then he told me he was getting tired and wanted to go to bed. We went into his bedroom and he got into his bed and I got into mine. Then he turned off the lights. I got up and turned the lights back on and he asked me what was the matter. I told him I did not trust him and I did not want him to kill me. He got up, came over to me and told me, I know a way you can trust me. I asked him, how? He said, let me tie you up. So you will know that I will not kill you. I let him tie me up the same way that he tied up Wells. Then he told me that he could kill me and that there was nothing I could do. I started to cry and I pleaded for my life like Wells did. He started to laugh and told me that he was not going to kill me. But if I ever ran from him, he would kill me and that if he could not get me, his partners would. I told him okay and that I would not run. So he untied me. I was so scared, I did not want Bonin or his partners to get me. I could not believe what I had gotten myself into. It was like a murder movie, like Friday the 13th, and this time it was for real. I could not get it out of my mind. I wanted it to all end, but I did not know how. I stayed low for a while until June 13, 1980, when I heard that Bonin was arrested for murder. James has asked Stephen Wells' parents for forgiveness. They have always lobbied to ensure that his parole is denied at every hearing. James gave voice to his regrets. I was just a stupid kid. If I had known that 15 years to life meant I was never going to get out of prison, I would never have pleaded guilty. Hooking up with Bonin was a huge mistake. June 2nd. Police began their surveillance of William Bonin. Stephen Wells had already been killed and his body was removed from Bonin's house before the police arrived. He was transported in a cardboard box and dumped behind a gas station. June 11th. Bonin could not keep the beast at bay any longer. He wanted another boy. He went out hunting unaware that police were tailing him. After failing with five young men, he finally landed a 15-year-old boy. He drove them to a beach parking lot. When the police arrived, they heard what they described as disturbing noises coming from inside the van. The rape and torture of Bonin's newest victim was underway. They intervened just in time. William Bonin was arrested and booked on suspicion of murder and various sex offenses. He was held on a $250,000 bond. He confessed to police that he had killed 21 boys and young men. One of the officers informed Bonin that the letters written to him by Mrs. King, mother of Sean King, were actually written by him. A statement from Bonin's confession. I tied him up with nylon this electrician type of wire. I pulled a knife on him and he got scared. I stabbed him in the left arm. It surprised me that I did it. I stabbed him again and then again and again and again until he was helpless. They would try to stop me from stabbing them 
and I would stab just a stab. I stuck them in different places with the knife because I didn't know where to stab, you know? I didn't know where any vital organs are or anything like that. Bonin was formally charged with 14 counts of murder, 11 counts of robbery, and one count each of sodomy and mayhem. The following is a complete list of Bonin's victims. Thomas Lundgren, 13, May 28, 1979. Mark Shelton, 17, August 4, 1979. Marcus Grabs, 17, August 5, 1979. Donald Hyden, 15, August 27, 1979. David Murillo, 17, September 9, 1979. Robert Wierostek, 18, September 17, 1979. John Doe, believed to be 19 to 25, November 29, 1979. Frank Dennis Fox, 17, November 30, 1979. John Kilpatrick, 15, December 10, 1979. Michael McDonald, 16, January 1, 1980. Charles Miranda, 15, February 3, 1980. James McCabe, 12, February 3, 1980. Ronald Gatlin, 18, March 14, 1980. Glenn Barker, 14, March 21, 1980. Russell Rue, 15, March 21, 1980. Harry Todd Turner, 15, March 24, 1980. Stephen Wood, 16, April 10, 1980. Lawrence Sharp, 18, April 10, 1980. Darren Lee Kendrick, 19, April 29, 1980. Sean King, 14, May 19, 1980. Stephen Wells, 18, June 2, 1980. Law enforcement officials believe the tally could be much higher. Vernon Butts was taken into custody on July 25th. Some of the evidence from the murders was found in his home. Vernon insisted that he only acted as an assistant to Bonin in the killings. He did admit that he tortured one of the victims with a coat hanger. Said Butts regarding this murder, We took him out the middle of nowhere and had sex with him and then we killed him. Butts was charged for being an accomplice in nine of the murders. August 14th, James Monroe fled to Michigan. Police tracked him down, and he too was charged as an accomplice. August 22nd, Gregory Miley was taken into custody in Houston, Texas. He was charged with two counts of murder, two counts of robbery, and one count of sodomy. January 1, 1981. William Bonin pleaded innocent to the freeway killings. Prosecutor Aaron Stovitz described Bonin as the most arch-evil person who ever existed. In another portion of journalist David Lopez's interview with William Bonin, he asked him why he killed so many victims. Bonin said he, quote, liked the sound of kids dying. End quote. Vernon Butts committed suicide while in custody. 
Prosecutor Sterling Norris said the following as his closing argument about how Bonin treated his victims. Tying them like pigs and throwing them out like garbage, these dump sites are part of Mr. Bonin's habits. To use those freeways to put a body some distance from where it was killed, these ligatures are a trademark. It's like signing Bonin on each and every one of these murders. If just one of these victims could take the stand and tell you about the humiliation, the degradation of ending his life this way, there would be no question what the result ought to be. Just as Mr. Bonin drove the van of death, picking up these young kids, I ask you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, to drive the van of justice and tell him, get in, Mr. Bonin, your days of killing are done. January 5th, jury deliberations began. January 11th, the jury returned with convictions for 10 of the murders. These were the murders of Donald Hyden, Stephen Wells, Stephen Wood, Charles Miranda, James McCabe, Harry Todd Turner, David Morello, Marcus Grabs, Darren Kendrick, and Ronald Gatlin. To quote Sterling Norris, I think it's a very good verdict, a very just verdict that was fully earned by Mr. Bonin. We will ask for the death penalty. Lavada Gifford weighed in. Even though there was not a guilty verdict on Sean, we know William Bonin killed Sean. There are ten first-degree murder convictions, and that's a victory. William Bonin said he expected to receive the death penalty. To quote Bonin, I'd be stupid not to expect it. If it comes down that way, it might be easier to handle. This was his first trial, and he was relieved that it was over. The jury voted for the death penalty with no trepidation or objections. To quote Prosecutor Norris, the crimes were so horrible, so repeated, there was no other just verdict. After listening to this evidence, I think you reached a moral judgment. Superior Court Judge William B. Keene formally sentenced Bonin to death. He called his crimes unbelievably cruel. He referred to his method of body disposal as a, quote, revolting affront to human dignity. He had a total disregard for the sanctity of human life and the dignity of civilized society. Sadistic, unbelievably cruel, senseless, and deliberately premeditated, guilty by any measure of possible or imaginary doubt. Jim Wells, father of Steve Wells, said, I'm happy with the sentence, and I'll be happy when it's carried out. That guy's a monster, totally devoid of human feeling, as could be noted that he sat there without even flinching. William Bonin's second trial was in Orange County, there he was charged with the murders of Dennis Frank Fox, Glenn Barker, Russell Rue, and Lawrence Sharp. Bonin, much to his disappointment, was held in isolation throughout the proceedings. To quote Bonin, they had me in a room by myself, which is a bummer, Bonin wrote to psychologist Dr. Von de Pelto. No one to talk to or play chess with. I hope my attorney is successful in getting a roommate for me. 
Ten months is too long to be cooped up in a medical isolation room all by myself. March 1983, the second trial began. Sandra Miller, mother of Russell Rue, developed a drinking problem after the death of her son. At the end of every day of the trial, she would go to a bar. I would get drunk and all I'd talk about was Rusty. It was the only time I dared to. I had so much pain. Bonin created most of our problems. He created a real havoc in our world. Bonin's mother took the tack of informing the court of what a nice boy Bonin was. They didn't buy it. Prosecutor Brian Brown made this closing argument. Bonin is a very intelligent individual who goes to great lengths to avoid leaving any evidence. One could truly say from the evidence found in the van, it's a virtual death wagon. Bonin would suggest they have sex with the hitchhikers, then kill them by binding them and strangling them. Killing to this man is less than stepping on an ant. He truly is a mass murderer. One of Bonin's fellow inmates took the stand, stating that Bonin offered him money to lie in court. August 26th. The jury convicted Bonin on all four counts of murder. After a deliberation of two and a half hours, they recommended the death penalty. A Superior Court judge upheld this sentence. Jerry Fox, mother of Dennis Fox, said, We're grateful. Bonin was offended by the judge's closing remarks. As he intimated to Dr. Pelto, he told me I was sadistic and guilty of monstrous criminal conduct. I don't think he had any right to say that to me. I couldn't help myself. It's not my fault I killed those boys. Bonin's surviving accomplices received life sentences. February 22, 1996, the day of Bonin's execution. When asked if he felt any remorse, he stated that his only regret was not becoming a professional bowler since he excelled at it as a teen. He told a radio station that he made peace with dying, as he remarked, As far as how I'm going to feel at that very moment, I can't answer that question. I don't know. I don't think any of us would know until we're there. As far as the impact his crimes made on the families of the victims, he offered no remorse, no empathy, and no apologies. As he put it, I don't think anybody in a situation such as I'm in, whether guilty or innocent, no matter what they said, would help in any way. I really don't. They feel my death will bring closure, but that's not the case. They're going to find out. In his holding cell before he was executed, he watched an episode of Jeopardy. His last meal was two large sausage and pepperoni pizzas, three pints of coffee ice cream, and three six-packs of Coca-Cola. He was executed via lethal injection. He was dead by 12.13 a.m. Unfortunately for the surviving victims and the families of the dead, the suffering lives on unabated. Their pain will only be relieved when they too have perished. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.